Merry Christmas. All right, that's pretty good. That's pretty good, but you know, it's one week away, so you've had plenty of time to celebrate, so try it again. Merry Christmas. Now we're talking. Do you guys do your Christmas shopping yet? Did you get my present yet? I got an apology to make to one of you. I'm not sure who it is, but I found in the console of my car, I don't know if you know what the console of your your car is, you know what it's known as? It's known as purgatory of gift cards. It's where gift cards go to die. And I found a gift card to, for $30 to the Japanese sushi restaurant here in town. But the expiration date is long past. Sorry, I really appreciated the gift and somehow I forgot about it. Actually, I'm not the only one. The most requested gift at Christmas time is, guess what? Gift cards. Because people get tired of trusting Uncle Frank to get them the right thing, and they would rather choose for themselves. That's part of it. Almost $30 billion will be spent this holiday season on gift cards. But here's the deal. By the way, the average price is $45. No pressure for you to think of what Uncle Frank gives you. But $1 billion worth of gift cards will go unredeemed, unused this year. A billion dollars spent of people buying gift cards like one of you did for me. And I didn't use it. We're in this Advent series called Christmas Shopping. And we're looking at the question, where's the life? The reason I've entitled it that is because we do a lot of Christmas shopping for others and even for ourselves. But bottom line, what we ultimately need cannot be found in a shopping mall. But it is found in the gospel. It's found in the coming of the Christ. In fact, our gift giving, one of the origins of it is to reflect God's great gifts to us through Jesus. So here's the deal. He's given us the gifts. Everybody here and out there. But the question is, will we use it? Will we receive it? Will we, quote, cash it or not? And that applies to all the gifts we're looking at this, this Advent season, but today we're looking at the, the gift of His love. And of all the gifts, this is one of the ones that's neglected the most. He's given it to you, He's given it to you, He's given it to you, and to you, and to you, to me. Will we actually receive it? Will we actually open it up? Or will it remain unused? All right, to guide us on this journey, we're going to continue going through this passage we started two weeks ago. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 61. This is a messianic prophecy, which means it's a prophecy about Messiah, the Christ, the one who was promised in the garden. When Adam and Eve rebelled, God said, instead of destroying what I've made and starting over, I'm going to glorify myself by redeeming, by restoring what I've made, and I'm, I'm going to come and accomplish that myself. 
I will send Redeemer. So that Messiah was forecast, predicted throughout the hundreds of years of what we now know as Old Testament history. And there are hundreds of prophecies that were accurately describing the Christ's arrival, where he'd be born, things like that. Here's one of them. Now, the context of this is Jesus, when he was about 28, 29 years old, went away to the desert for 40 days, 40 nights. That kind of a final refining as he began his, quote, public ministry. He didn't become the Son of God at that moment. He had always had been, but this is when he was about to begin his public ministry that lasted really only about three years. He came back from that time, was doing teaching and miracles, and we went to his hometown of Nazareth up in Galilee to a synagogue service. And they asked him to read the scriptures. And it was probably a liturgical calendar schedule they were keeping, and this was the passage. So Jesus read these words, Isaiah 61, verse 1, 2, 3. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. That's not just poor, fiscally poor, it's poor bankruptcy, poor in spirit, spiritual bankruptcy. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now that day of vengeance is not vengefulness, but it's a day of justice. It's where all things will be brought to reconciliation, to redemption, to newness. And comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow in them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oils of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. Hmm. We've been going through that text this month, looking at what a mess our lives can be. The Bible refers to us as clay pots because we're beautifully fashioned by the potter but also because we are we're pretty broken. If you've been here, you've seen me break some vases. There was a shortage of vases in Central Florida as a result, so I <laughs> thought I'd br- bring one we already broke last week. But we all know this. Now, some of us conceal our brokenness more than others. We mask it. But we've all got brokenness. The longer you live in a fallen world, it can be relational, family, financial, medical, health issues, emotional issues. The list goes on and on. Bottom line is we're clay pots and we're broken. And we think this is disqualifying me from celebrating Christmas this year, especially if something recent has happened. The happy carols and Christmas cookies and tinsel seems to mock us in this place. But this is actually the best place to celebrate Christmas. 
This is why he came. It's not a matter of gussing everything up and pretending I'm not dealing with this. It's not a matter of anesthetizing myself through all sorts of painkillers. It's not a matter of me uh, getting distracted enough by focusing on another area of my life that is not as broken. It's a matter of me embracing this brokenness, but not doing so in a vacuum. Embracing this brokenness against the backdrop of his advent of his arrival, of his coming. And he says, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. We've been talking about the Japanese art of kintsugi. This is patterned after that, a broken pot, a broken bowl or a dish that's repaired through a lacquer that's laced with gold or platinum or silver. And uh, this Japanese art of kintsugi can transform a broken bowl into something even more beautiful than it was before. Restoring to the original purpose and actually something even more beautiful. And as we're doing our Christmas shopping, what we're most needing is what the shopping malls can't provide. And the first week we asked that question, where's the healing? Where's the healing for my broken heart? And we looked at that phrase in that prophecy that Jesus read in that synagogue. I've come to bind up the brokenhearted. Last week we looked at that next statement. You see this, all this rubble, it's, it's like these prison bars grow up out of this rubble and imprison us in, in aimlessness and guilt and shame and, and despair and says he, he came to free us from that prison. Proclaim release from darkness. The word release there means wide wide open eyed. Our eyes have been wide opened. He comes and he says, I'm going to give you a vision to look past the prison that this, this has made to what can become again, true of you. Now, when he finished reading this, he said, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he told the people in that synagogue in Nazareth. He said, and in saying that, he's saying, I am he. I'm the one who was promised, and I'm He. And of course, that was blasphemous, and all sorts of ruckus occurred. But bottom line, He was saying, this is my agenda in your life. And it was not coming to start a holiday, not coming to start a religion, not coming to give us something to do on Sundays, but coming to bind up our brokenness and to free us from the prison that these pieces make. Today, we come to the next statement that He makes at the beginning of verse 2 of Isaiah 61. Hear it, to proclaim, so he's talking about binding up the broken heart and proclaiming release from darkness for the prisoners, for them to see what can be. And now he's going to address something that probably is one of the most difficult of his gifts to actually open. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Now this notion of God's favor is something that you see popping up in Scripture. It, it is one of the most powerful and liberating aspects of the gospel, but it's also one of the most overlooked. Psalm 69 refers to it. Verse 13, but I pray to you, O Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. 
Favor, love, salvation, they all go together. A lot of church people say, yeah, I've got the salvation thing down. But the truth is, they don't have the favor thing down, and as a result, they don't have the love thing down. And as a result, they're not fully unpacking their salvation, and are still in the midst of the brokenness, and this is a long way off in their mind. And it, it, it imprisons us in a mire of hopelessness. And we'll be looking, by the way, next, next week on Christmas Eve at Hope. But for now, let's look at what happens when we're in the midst of this. We tend to forget that we're still loved when we're in the midst of the rebel. We either think, if, if, you know, th- th- these pieces are a result of my own sin, or the sin of somebody else, maybe in my life, or just the fallenness of this world, uh, the news from a doctor, or just some stupidity and some stupid uh, decisions. But bottom line, here we are, and the temptation is to think, because I've screwed up, God does not love me. I'm not in His favor. Or, I'm in this, and if He loved me, I would not be in this mess. And as a result, we feel shattered and broken and disjointed in the way that we're doing our lives. And it's a staccato thing. And we can't fully get into a stride and a rhythm of living. And it has a lot to do with our failure to embrace this word favor. It comes up in one of the most popular Christmas passages. In fact, you've gotten a Christmas card, more than likely, that has this text on it from Luke chapter 2. I want you to try to not hear Charlie Brown's voice or Linus or whoever was reading it. Just hear my, here we go, verse 8, Luke 2, and there were shepherds living out on the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news. It's the gospel, Evangelion. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel. The sky fills with this angelic symphony and choir. And they're praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom His favor rests. Now, when you get the Christmas card, and if you haven't gotten one, go to some shop and look on the shelf, you'll see that, glory to God in the highest, and it's a misquote because it's a partial quote. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to all men or all people. Seen those? You don't see often on whom his favor rests. People put a period at the end of that to put it in the context of, you know what, it's, it's a tranquil night. The baby's cooing and the cows are mooing and the sheep are doing whatever sheep do and the baby's diaper's not dirty and the straw doesn't stink and everybody's clothes. It's, it's tranquility. It's this image of on earth, peace comes on a quiet night. That was not the scene. The scene was a messy, stinking stable. It was chaos in the region. But here's the great hope of the gospel, the power of the gospel. On earth, peace, shalom, 
which is, we've talked a lot about longings and us needing to grapple with our longings to really grapple the gospel. You could say shalom is the umbrella in which all, under which all our longings lie. Shalom is what we most yearn for in this place. Shalom means, yes, peace, but it means a wholeness. It means a settledness where, where, where I, I'm at peace internally. I'm restored. And the promise of the gospel is on earth. Shalom comes, but there is an important caveat. It comes to those on whom God's what? Favor rests. The reason that I have such a problem with shalom in this place is because I let all of this stuff interfere with the reality that I'm in His favor. God can't love me. The whole notion, I don't know if you heard in the Advent reading, this notion of unconditional love, we're thirsty for it. And it's one of the most tender spots of every one of our lives. I read uh, one of my son's books a few weeks ago, Adam Raccoon. And I think you picked up on the fact I was going through a shelf with a lot of the books that we would read to our sons. And here's one that I found, and it's, it's all yellow and dated. Andrew, it's to Andrew, our oldest, who sends his greetings. Actually, I was texting him before the service. He's watching uh, from Afghanistan. He's a captain in the Air Force there with the special operations. And hey, buddy, um, that's about... Um, 9.18 at night. It's a book I read to him, to his brothers, and Arlene would read it to them. It's called Love You Forever by Robert Munch. A mother held her new baby and very slowly rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she held him, she sang a song. I love you forever, I like you for always, as long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, the baby grew, and he grew, and he grew, and he grew. He grew, it's a theme to this book, until he was two years old, and he ran all around the house, and he pulled all the books off the shelves, and he pulled all the food out of the refrigerator, and he took his mother's watch and flushed it down the toilet. Sometimes his mother would say, this kid is driving me crazy. But at nighttime, when that two-year-old was quiet, she opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor, looked up over the side of his bed, and if he was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang a song. I love you forever. I like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, the little boy grew and he grew and he grew and he grew. And he grew until he was nine years old and he never wanted to come in for dinner and he never wanted to take a bath. And when grandma visited, he always said bad words. Sometimes his mother wanted to sell him to the zoo. But at nighttime, when he was asleep, the mother quietly opened the door to his room, 
crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed and if he was really asleep, she picked up that nine-year-old boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang a song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby will be. Well, the boy grew. He grew and he grew and he grew. He grew until he was a teenager and he had strange friends and he wore strange clothes and he listened to strange music. And sometimes the mother felt like she was in a zoo. But at nighttime, when that teenager was asleep, the mother opened the door to his room, crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of the bed. And if he was really asleep, she picked up that great big boy and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang a song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that teenager grew, he grew and he grew and he grew and he grew until he was a grown up man and he left home and got a house across town. But sometimes on dark nights, the mother got into her car and drove across town. You can see there is a ladder attached to the top of the car. It can get a little creepy right now if you let it and you don't want to do that. <laughs> if all the lights in her son's house were out, she opened his, she put that ladder up to his upstairs bedroom door of window and crawled across the floor and looked up over the side of his bed. And if that great big man was really asleep, she picked him up and rocked him back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And while she rocked him, she sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Well, that son got married and that mother, she got older. She got older and older and older. I was thinking about my mom this morning. I just texted her. She's watching this service as well. This is all about her too. One day she called up her son and she said, you'd better come see me because I'm very old and sick. So her son came to see her. And when he came in the door, she tried to sing a song. She sang, I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. But she couldn't finish because she was too old and too sick. The son went to his mother and he picked her up and he rocked her back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he sang her this song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my mommy, you'll be. When the son came home that night, he stood for a long time at the top of the stairs. And then he went into the room where his very new baby daughter was sleeping. He picked her up in his arms and very slowly rocked her back and forth, 
back and forth, back and forth. And while he rocked her, he sang a song. I'll love you forever. I'll like you for always. As long as I'm living, my baby, you'll be. Why does that impact us so deeply? I think one of the reasons is our thirst for unconditional love is so great and we have so few places where it's modeled. But the one relationship, not perfectly, plenty of exceptions to this, but most people think of a mother's love for her son or her daughter as being the epitome of what should be unconditional love. And again, plenty of violations of that. But that, that story has a, strikes a deep chord in us Yes, it could be over the pain or the preciousness of things we remember from growing up, but you go even deeper and it strikes a chord at the core of our being because we yearn to be loved unconditionally. And Jesus says, let me tell you why I've come. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Will we believe that He not only loves us, but He likes us? That He's the object we're the object of his affection and his pursuit. It's why Paul prayed. He prayed a prayer. I prayed for you guys earlier this morning and for me, especially those of you who are in the midst of this stuff. But all of you. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16, he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, how long, and how high and deep is the love of Christ. I'll say it again. How wide, how long, how high and deep. I'm going to say it one more time. How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. He says, I know you're tempted to think because of all of this, that he doesn't make you know how wide and big and infinite his love is for you. And it's not just his love for you. He loves you forever. He'll like you for always. Brendan Manning used to love to tell the story of a friend of his, a guy named Edward Farrell, a priest from Detroit who went to Ireland for a two-week vacation. He went over there. He had a, actually a, few, a couple of relatives still living over there. One was an 80-year-old uncle named Seamus. And his, it was his birthday while he was over there. It was one of the reasons that Edward timed his trip to be there for Uncle Seamus' birthday. And they got up early on his birthday before, before dawn, got dressed in some warm clothes, went over to the shores of Lake Killarney and watched the sunrise together. Didn't say a word. Just bask in the beauty and the glory of the arrival of that morning commemorating 80 years on this planet. And after the sun was well into the sky, Uncle Seamus, uh, Edward said, gave a, a little giggle and then turned around and started skipping back up the path and humming, whistling, chuckling. 
And finally, Edward caught up with him. This 80-year-old guy just took off. He said, Uncle Seamus, you seem like you're, you're pretty happy. He said, oh, I am, lad. He said, do you mind telling me why you're so happy? And Uncle Seamus stopped and looked at Edward. And he, he would, Uncle Seamus called God his father. He called him Abba. That's what Jesus taught us. That's the Aramaic word that Jesus used. He says, pray our father, our Abba, our daddy. And one of Uncle Seamus' trademarks was to call God Abba. And so when he was asked why he was so happy, he said, I'm happy because Abba is very fond of me. Abba, God, my father, is very fond of me. That man got the gospel. And he got what Jesus was saying, that no matter what a me- kind of mess this looks like, that Abba was fond of him. He had given him his favor. So how do we engage with that? That's a life journey, but let me give you two starting points. And by the way, just because these are starting points doesn't mean you do it and leave. You've got to embrace these every day, our entire lives, especially when we're in this mess. Here's the first one, to engage with His favor and His love. I need to understand these two. One is my role, the other is His role. So our role in this is one of receiving, not earning. When it comes to God's love and God's favor, it's a matter of receiving it, not earning it. And that's contrary to what we want. We want to earn. We, we have a Home Depot theology about us, or a Lowe's theology, just do it yourself. So I got to do all this stuff. And in, the, in these moments, that comes out maybe more loudly and clearly than others, because this is a pretty clear reminder that I don't have it all together. And therefore, he probably doesn't love me. I, I mean, I... And we think, for him to love me, I've got to fix myself. Second huh. Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, as God's fellow workers, Paul said, we urge you, we urge you, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. God's grace is him giving us what we need, not what we deserve. He lavishes it on us, pours it on us. And Paul's saying, he's giving you this grace. He's giving you this, this gift card of grace. May it not be in vain. Here's how we receive his grace in vain. He says, for in, he says in the time of my favor, in the time of my what? What? I want everybody saying it. Say that word, favor favor. God's favor toward us. In the time of my favor, I heard you. In the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. How can I not cash that that gift card of His favor and love? How can I stay in this mess? It's because I think this, this is getting in the way of His favor or it's evidence of his lack of favor. 
And I, I can start saying, I'm going to try to earn my way. And religious people are really good at this. Religious communities are good at this. We like to manipulate one another with shame and guilt and say, you better do this or God's not going to love you. Ephesians chapter 2, this great exposition of grace, it's a hallmark at the core of the gospel. Verses 8 and 9, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, a gift, a gift, a gift to be received. It's not something we can earn, not by works so that no one can boast. Will I believe that? Romans chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, looked at it last week. It's, it's part of the, 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 our prison here. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Will I believe that? Will you? Will I open the gift and actually begin to live like somebody who's loved by God? People say, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Our, our behavior makes a difference. Our obedience is important. Absolutely. But it's the motivation for our obedience that we, we misconstrue, and this is how we use guilt in our religious circles, because we say, you better obey in order for God to love you. No, the Scriptures talk about God has loved you, therefore obey. And the more I grasp His love, the more I want to please Him. Here's the way I put it. There's an enormous difference between pleasing God and earning His favor. I'm going to say it again. There's an enormous difference between pleasing God and earning His favor. I cannot earn His favor. I've got, there's an infinite gap between God's holiness and my sinfulness. There is no amount of good works that I can do to bridge that gap. He has come to me and He's lavished me with His grace through the work of Christ. It wasn't Him just ignoring my brokenness and my sin. Jesus came and He, he paid the, the death sentence. My sin is something that is not going to be something I can work myself out of. He's given me His favor. So what should motivate my obedience is to please Him. And there's a big difference. With my sons, they were always in my favor and always will be. doesn't matter what they do. They knew that. Could they displease me? They showed great creativity uh, and ingenuity in being able to displease me and, and Arlene. But even when they displeased us, they were not out of our favor. And when I displease God, I'm still in His favor. In fact, the more I understand that I'm not under condemnation can, can quicken the amount of time that it takes me to rise up from these ashes and to take another step Instead of saying there's no way he could still love me, to realize the gospel says he does, and we say that sounds too good to be true, and it's why it's called the gospel. Paul talked about we have it as our goal to please him. He told the Corinthians that. That was his goal. Not to earn his favor. That can't be done, but to please him. And so for me to grasp and begin to engage with this love and favor, I've got to understand that my role is one of receiving, not earning, but I also need to understand God's role in this. And this is something that we misunderstand so often. God's role is one of redemption, not exemption. 
A lot of us think that the gospel is an exemption card to difficulty. And when difficult things happen, we think, there's no way that God loves me. If He loved me, I wouldn't be in this mess. So there's that sense of, okay, I've made a mess, therefore I've lost His love. There are other times things happen that we didn't necessarily cause, and we think, He must not love me. I must not be in His favor. And the Scriptures say over and over, we are in His favor. We cannot lose His favor. It's not something that that we we, we earned. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 33 makes something very clear. He says, I've told you these things. I've read this to you guys before. I'll read it to you again. It's it's, It's my hope in the brokenness. It's yours. In this world, you will have trouble. I've told you these things so that in me you may have what? Shalom peace. Peace to all those on whom God's favor rests, remember? He says, in this world, you will have trouble. This is going to happen. There's nobody that's exempt. God's love is not an exemption of this. What God's love is a redemption that's been purchased. He says, I've overcome the world. Peter took up that theme in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. God's people are not exempt from the fallenness, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Understanding and realizing that His redemption that He accomplished on the cross was taking my death sentence and fulfilling it. An offense against an infinite God is an infinite offense that requires an infinite payment that will therefore take me infinity, all eternity to pay. That's my only recourse unless Jesus had come as the infinite God-man, dying not for His own sin, but in my place. And He says, receive my gift. Be clothed with my righteousness. The favor that God lavishes on me is the favor that He gives to His own Son, Jesus. It's the best news around. That's why it's called the gospel. It's why it's called good news. And because of the certainty of what Jesus has done, nothing's going to separate us from His love. Romans chapter 8. What then? Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will we not also, along with Him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who who will bring any charge? God's the one that justifies. He's the only one that can judge. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor any broken pieces in my life, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the beauty of Advent, the beauty, the, the beauty of Advent, and I told you guys this last year, I carry a nail with me during Advent. It reminds me that Jesus is not a little baby mascot, but He came to die. He came to pay the penalty for my mess and yours. 
He came to reverse the curse. A friend of mine, John Stone Street, is the president of the Colson Center. He has a painting in his office. It's a painting by a woman named Grace Remington. And it's of Mary and Eve. And Mary, a pregnant Mary, is consoling Eve. And there's some symbolism. The serpent's head is underneath Mary's foot. Her offspring was promised in Genesis 3 to be the one that would be lethal to Satan. And another woman in response to this, a friend of Grace's, wrote this about that painting, O Eve, my mother, my daughter, life-giving Eve, do not be ashamed, do not grieve. The former things have passed away. Our God has brought us to a new day. See, I am with child, through whom all will be reconciled. O Eve, my sister, my friend, we will rejoice together forever. Life without end.